break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 1st of July, 2021. Very happy to be back with you here on the show Happy to be starting a new month with you here on The Punch Out. We've got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. Today, of course, is the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. And given the importance of China on the world stage, and certainly as it concerns the broader geopolitical stance of the United States, today we really want to take a step back and really look at a retrospective of Chinese communism at 100. <laughs> Well, as we mentioned at the outset, today is the 100th birthday of the Chinese Communist Party, commemorating the day in 1921, where the call went out to the local units of the small Chinese Communist movement to send delegates to a founding convention for a new party. And 12 people would arrive a few weeks later, representing a membership of just 55. Well, now 100 years on, the Chinese Communist Party is the leading party of the world's most populous nation and the world's second largest economy, and has grown just a bit, to over 95 million members. Undoubtedly, the story of the Chinese communists is truly one of the most remarkable stories, certainly in the 20th century and now the 21st, and perhaps in world history. The Chinese party emerged in the 1920s as the focal point of resistance to what is known as the century of humiliation, where China, which for thousands of years had been the richest, most technologically advanced nation on earth, was dismembered and ground under, by the colonial powers of Europe and the rising capitalism of America. Forced into humiliating concessions, where the various powers engaged in land grabs of all sorts, including the British taking Hong Kong. Forced to endure a brutal drug war, perpetuated by the British as well, who created tens of millions of addicts in an effort to drain China of its great wealth and power. Where racism was allowed to run rampant and the Chinese treated like second, third, and fourth class citizens in their own country and their own great cities, like Shanghai. The early Chinese leaders were of a new breed, sick and tired of the colonial existence that also perpetuated a feudal-like reality for China's people and presided over a state of affairs where famine and pestilence were normal. And these early Chinese communist leaders, before they became communists per se, had joined the patriotic societies and leagues to fight back and then became communists when they were inspired by the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 to believe that they could change the destiny of all China to place its great potential at the service of the great majority of the country by adopting the methods pioneered by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and being put into practice then at that time in unexpected circumstances across the vast expanses of the former Tsarist empire. Throughout the late 1920s, in the 1930s, and the 1940s, they organized to bring their dream to fruition, becoming the leaders of everything from mass strike movements to peasant uprisings and guerrilla wars all of which represented the deep well of resistance in the Chinese people to end the long night of foreign domination and the economic deprivation that came along with it. Chinese communism truly blossomed during the Second World War, 
known in China as the War of Resistance to Japanese Aggression, where their free-flowing guerrilla fighting style tied down huge numbers of Japanese troops, and where their policies of land reform broke the back of the feudal lords and empowered the poor peasants who for thousands of years had been seen as objects, not subjects, by elite rulers. This reputation and practice made it almost inevitable after the Japanese withdrew that the communists would sweep to power as the only force dedicated to improving the livelihood of the people, fighting corruption, and ending the imperialist carve-up of the massive country. The spirit that brought them to power is perhaps summed up best by the words of Chairman Mao himself, leader of the Chinese communists at that time, upon coming to power in 1949, that China had stood up. The Chinese communists certainly applied themselves taking a country that had been almost destitute and turning it around by harnessing the energy of hundreds of millions of people to build a new, more advanced, and more equal society. Prodigious economic growth figures have always been a hallmark of China since 1949. For instance, between 1953 and 1957, the GDP of the country increased 128%. Peasants were given power in the countryside and women freed from feudal patriarchy and allowed real rights for the first time. 50 million peasants were taught to read in just a two-year period, from 1952 to 1953. While the whole history of what is known as the Mao period from 1949 to 1976 is beyond the scope of what we can do here, it's worth noting that China achieved many truly amazing feats during that time. For instance, reflecting on the progress of the communes in the countryside towards the end of this period, one observer noted that 30% of them were doing quite well, which meant that China had roughly 230 million people successfully living cooperatively and collectively, the largest ever, before or since, and clearly most successful effort to forge human relations that attempted to transcend hierarchy and forge a path for the common good. Empowering everyday people to believe that they could change the world by educating themselves and acting as a group. One of my favorite stories in that regard comes from the docks of Tianjin in the early 1970s. In the pre-cultural revolution days in the port of Tianjin, they lacked strong enough cranes to handle many of the commercial vessels from abroad. Now, in this time of the early 1970s, the workers were also studying Mao's own contradiction, specifically the dialectical unity of opposites and whether conditions internal or external to relationships are decisive in the outcome. And no doubt they were fortified by Mao's explication there of the revolutionary concept that the internal conditions are always decisive. In a suitable temperature, an egg changes into a chicken, but no temperature can change a stone into a chicken. The workers embarked in that spirit on a project to build a new, heavier crane, working with scrap metal for eight months, five living totally on the job. The workers delivered the new crane successfully, donating it in honor of the Ninth Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. This quote-unquote philosophical crane was topped with a red flag, adorned with a portrait of a smiling Chairman Mao, and emblazed with the slogan, Be Self-Reliant. China's history would, in the 1970s, also take a more complicated and in many ways darker turn as the impetus of the Chinese communists to break out of international isolation and their conflict with the Soviet Union led them to embrace a pro-U.S. imperialist foreign policy, breaking sharply from their previous record as one of the most stalwart defenders of the radical movements of the developing world, particularly in Africa, where they counted almost all the great anti-colonial leaders as their friends. Mistakes aside... The Chinese Communist Party continued to pursue all sorts of innovative techniques to continue raising the living standards of the Chinese people. While they broke sharply from their egalitarian ethos that had inspired billions of people around the world in 1978, they did not drop the core of their focus to harness the energy of the masses to create broad, collective prosperity. 
The story since 1978 is, of course, much better known, how China transformed itself into the workshop of the world, lifted 770 million people out of abject poverty, turned some of the smallest fishing towns in the country into some of the world's greatest and most powerful centers of commerce. And this was not without a cost, as the communist, some might say ironically, harnessed the brutal hand of the market to accomplish many of these tasks. By just about any measure, the overall standard of living, though, did rise, but some contradictions of capitalism also creeped in, meaning that for many workers, the greater prosperity was paid for by a loss of guaranteed economic security, benefits, and direct control over the process of production that were hallmarks of the Mao era. Perhaps the best way to judge the results is to look at how the Chinese people themselves feel about their own society. In 2012, the World Values Survey found that more than 60% of Chinese respondents related that they felt quote-unquote free. That same survey, the World Values Survey in the year 2000, measured trust in political institutions, in which China scored the highest. 64% of Chinese people had trust in key institutions. Again, the highest in the world. And 59% had trust in all institutions. In the U.S., those percentages were 56% and 50% respectively, while in France, it's 49% and 48%. In a 2008 Asian Barometer survey, they found that 78% of Chinese people agreed with the phrase, quote, my government would respond to people's needs. 78%. The highest of any country surveyed. So more than any other of the countries surveyed there in Asia, People in China, 78% of them thought the government would respond to people's needs. Notably, the next highest was Singapore at 66%, and last was South Korea at 21%. Despite its massive achievements, China's communists have fairly measured goals. And the major milestone that was announced today was that they had succeeded in creating a, quote, moderately prosperous society. And they now have set a new goal, turning to create a high-income, modern socialist society by 2035. For those of us in the United States, the major question is, as the Chinese Communist Party enters its second century, what attitude will America take? The entire political leadership of the U.S. has decided that China must be contained. Its growth must be stopped. Its achievements must be curtailed. They want to impose a new Cold War, and they fear that the rise of China means the end of the unipolar imperialist rule of the entire world by the United States. However, with the world facing existential crises of all types, starting with climate change, China clearly appears as a powerful partner. No one serious, for instance, thinks that the climate emergency can be addressed without U.S.-China cooperation. And given that it's an issue that concerns the very existence of humanity, that certainly seems like a powerful impetus for cooperation indeed. Instead, we are being told to fear and hate China, to support anything that weakens China, to believe any claim of any poor treatment of its own people, no matter how poorly sourced that claim may be, breeding total distrust. And the reality is, without trust, there is no real compromise. Negotiations of any sort are poisoned from the start. A hundred years on from the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, there is much to be said about China, good and bad, praise and critique. But the question that the communists of China first raised, which is do the Chinese people have a right to live and live decently alongside the rest of the world, is still an operative one. And thus, for Americans, the question of whether other nations and peoples have the right to their own path is the one we must answer. Will we seek to impose a new century of humiliation? We'll look forward to the areas of cooperation and move into a new century where all nations are working together in the interest of humanity. That's the punch out for today. 
We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.